RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 337, The Visitor. another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week our mission continues, examining every episode of Star Trek, picking apart the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein. This week, we take a look at one of the most emotionally powerful episodes of Deep Space Nine with The Visitor. Well, the, the Visitor not named Nana, even though she was technically the only Visitor in the production, I've, never mind. But before we settle into this episode with a nice cup of tea and a warm blanket by a crackling fire, John, could you please let the listeners know how they can reach us so they don't stumble around in the dark and even perhaps get injured by a wayward tree branch? My pleasure. If you would like to contact us, please isolate your subspace carrier waves for the following contact frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may, we very well may, use your comments in an upcoming episode of Mission Log or Mission Log Live or something under the Mission Log name. Now, with the heavy emotional content of this episode, which we are going to dig in very shortly, there is a nice amount of trivia that only the one, the only John Champion can lay down for us like a master track. So, John, how about that trivia? Wow, that is quite the introduction, Norman. Thank you so much. And you know what? Yeah, we we like to get the light stuff out of the way ahead of time because uh, it might get heavier. But trivia for The Visitor. Now, this episode was written by Michael Taylor, who also went on to write several more episodes of DS9, including In the Pale Moonlight, which is one of, if not the most beloved episode of the series and has garnered incredible levels of critical acclaim. He also went on to write many episodes for Star Trek Voyager, as well as becoming a producer and writer for season three and beyond for Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica. Now, Rene Echeverria, of course, uh, well-known as a writer-producer by this point on DS9, actually did an uncredited rewrite, and it was a very collaborative uh, process for Michael Taylor. He actually credits Rene with coming up with some uh, of the even more emotional character moments in this script. The episode was directed by David Livingston, and we have a, a little episode switcheroo here. Uh, Hippocratic Oath was actually the second episode of the season to be filmed right after The Way of the Warrior, because Colomini wasn't available, which is why he doesn't appear in the future defiant scenes here in The Visitor. So The Visitor is episode three from season four, which followed the two-parter The Way of the Warrior, which we discussed at length on episode 336 of Mission Log. 
and The Visitor originally aired on October 9th, 1995. Now, this episode was nominated for an Emmy for Best Makeup. I'm sure that we'll be talking about the makeup here. A lot of old age appliances and uh, techniques done throughout. Now, Norman, I said that it was nominated for an Emmy for Best Makeup. Would you like to take a guess at what won that year for Best Makeup? I would like to be honest here and say I didn't know, mm-hmm. but... Oh, but you do know, yeah? But I do know. Oh, and, lay it on me. <laughs> okay, so for, for, for in, in, uh, my, you know, being completely honest and for entire transparency to our fans, Babylon 5 is actually my favorite show yeah. of all time. This episode, The Visitor, and Babylon 5's Season 2, The Coming of Shadows, were both nominated, and Babylon 5's The Coming of Shadows actually beat out The Visitor. It won that Hugo Award for dramatic presentation. Ooh, ooh, here's where we're going to have fun, and here's why I do the little switcheroo. So you're right. Babylon 5, The Coming of Shadows, won the Hugo for Best Dramatic Presentation. But Makeup, the Emmy for Makeup, did not go to Babylon 5, it went to Star Trek Voyager for, drumrolls, please, Threshold. So, is that the one with the lizards? It is. It is. It, it is just one of the, uh, to me, just one of the most amusingly reviled episodes of Star Trek. But hey, we never break the timeline here. So I'm just going to pretend like I didn't say that, like I've never seen it. And we'll get to it in a few years. But yes, Emmys that year, Star Trek versus Star Trek. Threshold one. But remember, we're just talking makeup. We're not talking script. We're not talking acting performances, just talking makeup. So uh, in that case, Voyager beat DS9 in what is one of the most hated episodes. I will say hated, but let's say a least favorite among many compared to a favorite among many. And in that category, the lesser favorite one. Uh, But you, sir, you are absolutely correct about Babylon 5, uh, The Coming of Shadows, for uh, winning the Hugo uh, versus this episode. Um, Now, look, I have not watched that series all the way through. I don't know that episode by name, The Coming of Shadows. Do you feel like the best show won? Well, that's a really good question. And if you asked me this question before something personal, very personal to me, happened in my life, if I watched these two episodes back to back, I would say that The Coming of Shadows was the better episode in dramatic form, in dramatic presentation. However, as things change in your life and as events happen and very impactful, personal, and, and deeply, profoundly changing events happen in your life, when I watch The Visitor now, it probably is the most important episode of Star Trek to this date that I've ever seen. And that somewhat colors my opinion of what I think is the best dramatic presentation because I cannot disassociate myself with the emotional connection that I have with this episode versus the quality of dramatic presentation that was unveiled in The Coming of Shadows. Now, I know that episode intimately. I know exactly what happens. But from a personally emotional standpoint, I don't feel that it pulls that type of personal connection into that episode the way that The Visitor does for me. But I know that if people are watching The Visitor and haven't undergone an experience similar to what Jake has, as I have, mm-hmm. they may disagree. I understand that. And that's why our fandoms are so important to us because they give us those emotional anchors to connect to 
and to lean on if possible from time to time, but it's very, very difficult to do. All right. Okay. Well, well, hey, I, I think we, we can just take that and we copy and paste it to our Act 4 today. <laughs> very well said. <laughs> well, hey, uh, uh, since we're going to uh, hold you in anticipation for that moment, uh, I'll finish up with trivia here. Uh, we have guest appearances. Of course, our guest stars. Now, we get to say welcome back to Aaron Eisenberg as Nog, who, of course, pops in throughout uh, the season and through the rest of the series. And I, I want to make special mention of him in a moment, too, when we get uh, uh, past our recap. Now, we get to say welcome back to Tony Todd, here as adult and elder Jake Sisko. Uh, very nice to welcome back Tony here. He was in TNG as Worf's brother Kern, and we talked about his acting background then. Interestingly, uh, Sirach Lofton was considered for the role of old Jake, but the makeup didn't look right. So it was decided to go with a different actor. And, uh, of course, we will see much more of Tony Todd later in DS9, too. Not as Jake, though. This, this Jake, uh, spoiler, does not come back. Now, we have uh, Galen George as Karina, Jake Sisko's wife, uh, for a short time in this episode. She's had a wide and varied career in front of the camera as an actor, a dancer, and many more roles, and performed all over the world in live shows. Now, other than nostalgic TV shows like the A-Team and the grossly overlooked It's Your Move from the 80s and movies like Robocop 2. I think I personally am most amused that her first pro credit is as a dancer in the ZZ Top video for Sharp Dressed Man. Well, every girl's crazy for A dot dot dot. <laughs> well put, well put. <laughs> and finally, uh, special mention here of Rachel Robinson as Melanie. And uh, Norman, you brought this right right up uh, even before I had looked up anything about the show. Melanie, played by Rachel Robinson, that last name, Robinson, daughter of Deep Space Nine's Garrick, Andrew Robinson. Very cool to see somebody from the family here. Doesn't have a really extensive acting resume, uh, but you can find online. She's actually been working as a singer-songwriter of late and living in the uh, Pacific Northwest. So we will uh, return to her later in the episode, Observations. Warning. This episode is so emotionally heavy, it can make even a Vulcan cry. Prologue It was a dark and stormy night. As a heavy rain spatters on the window, an elderly hand picks up and caresses a baseball displayed near a photo of Captain Benjamin Sisko and his teenage son Jake. Placing the baseball back on its stand, the hand opens up an adjacent chest and removes a hypospray. Injecting himself with the syringe, this very aged and white-haired African man is interrupted by a door chime and the appearance of a young, blonde-haired woman standing in his doorway. Forehead cut by a wayward tree branch and soaked to the bone by the rain, she is graciously invited inside to get out of the rain and warm herself by the hearth. As he looks for a first aid kit, she reveals that she is a writer who has braved this storm desperately looking for him, the Jake Sisko, the famous writer, but more importantly, her favorite author. After tending her wounds, Jake offers some tea and wraps her in a warm blanket. As she sheepishly professes her admiration for his writing, 
especially for his very first book, Anselm, of which he's read twice in succession, she asks him why he stopped writing so many decades ago. With tones of somber reflection in his voice and a few charmingly coy evasions to her questions, Jake finally tells her that if it weren't for being today of all days, he would have sent her away. But now, Jake Sisko is ready to tell his story and reveals to her why he stopped writing. When he was 18, he suffered the worst thing that could ever happen to a young man. His father died. Act 1. Jake sits next to his young guest and begins his story, describing how he and his father became closer after his mother's death. Having read his biography, the young woman explains to Jake that she thought he quit writing to do scientific research. But Jake tells her it wasn't that simple. Just before his father died, he was working on a story that had consumed him for weeks with great intent and great frustration. As a wave of nostalgia and a flashback to a different time washes over him. Captain Benjamin Sisko insists that his 18-year-old teenage son, who is currently consumed with his writing, needs a break and to go with him to the Defiant to watch the wormhole undergo a subspace inversion in the Gamma Quadrant, a phenomenon that happens naturally only once every 50 years. However, easily tucked away in his quarters, with his head continually buried in his pad, Jake is just as consumed with his work on the Defiant as he was on the station. Distracted and frustrated, Jake feverishly works on his story, much to his father's chagrin, and Captain Sisko tells Jake that he would never forgive himself if he missed this subspace inversion. He also gives Jake a piece of advice that Jake will never forget. Well, I'm no writer, but if I were, it seems to me I'd want to poke my head up every once in a while and take a look around, see what's going on. It's life, Jake. You can miss it if you don't open your eyes. Just as he persuades Jake to come with him, turbulence shakes the defiant as red alert klaxons sound off in alarm. Dax reports that the wormhole's gravimetric field is surging and the power output from the warp core just jumped off the scale. Unable to reach anyone in engineering, Benjamin tells Jake to stay put as he races to assist the warp core threat. But on this day, Jake uncharacteristically decides to follow his father. Entering engineering, Jake watches his father try to give aid to injured personnel as Dax tells Benjamin that he has to align the warp coils to break its feedback loop before the core breaches. Needing an interphasic compensator, Benjamin has Jake sift through a sea of strewn tools until he finally found it, handing it to his father. Racing against time, and with no possibility of ejecting the core, Captain Sisko realigns and stabilizes the warp coils. With all seemingly in the clear, a rogue energy wave surge knocks Jake down, and right before his very eyes, he watches his father vanish in a flash of light. Returning to the present, Elder Jake Sisko tells his guest that time passes, and people heal, but not him. He told her that at his father's memorial on Deep Space Nine, he could not summon the words to adequately describe his father. Knowing that he was lost and alone, Captain Sisko's attire command staff looked in on Jake, especially Dax, 
who felt responsible for Jake as she is Benjamin's best friend. Even Quark let Nog skip a little bit of work so that he could spend time with Jake cheering him up in the hollow suites. Shortly after, Nog and Jake talk about what lies ahead as Nog is soon leaving for Starfleet, but Jake is lost in decision about pursuing his writing at Pennington or staying on the station. Trying to sleep, Jake tosses and turns and is suddenly startled awake by a shimmering figure at the foot of his bed. It is his father, at least for a brief moment. Act 2. Elder Jake continues his story and tells his young visitor that he told Dax how real his father's appearance felt like any waking dream. Returning to the past and back on DS9 after a thorough scan of his quarters and a bout of feeling ridiculous, Jake tries to put his father's visitation behind him to move on with his life. If you consider eight to nine months of lingering around, not working on your writing, not working on new stories, and playing excessive amounts of Dom Jot, moving on. With Nog at Starfleet and Dax, Kira, and the rest of the crew watching over him as best they can, Jake still feels alone and adrift. Meanwhile, the politics of the Alpha Quadrant and the wormhole continue to press forward. Without Captain Sisko as the Bajoran emissary, their most revered religious figure, the Bajorans create a mutual defense alliance with the Cardassians to stand against the current Klingon aggression. Civilians are voluntarily leaving the station en masse, trying to escape a possible war with the Klingons. As Deep Space Nine would be in the front line of fire, Kira and Worf try to convince Jake to leave as well. Kira pleads with Jake to leave the station to be with his grandfather, but Jake says he can't leave because everything on the station reminds him of his father, and without DS9 to call home, there would be nothing left of his father for him to hold on to. Promising Kira that he would leave if absolutely necessary, Jake walks back to his quarters, and a familiar flash of light sputters in the hallway, and Jake sees his father on the floor against a bulkhead. Racing towards Benjamin and grabbing his hand, Jake knows beyond any shadow of a doubt that this is no vision, no apparition, no dream. He was real. Shortly after a thorough examination in the infirmary, Dr. Bashir, Dax, and Chief O'Brien conclude that Captain Sisko's temporal signature was knocked out of phase by the warp core accident over a year ago, pulling him into subspace and causing him to phase in and out of time without feeling the effects of its passing. Trying to be strong, Jake breaks into tears as his father tells him whatever happened wasn't his fault, and the precious time that they have right now is all that matters. As Captain Sisko begins to phase, he needs Jake to convince him that Jake will be all right no matter what happens. Trying to stabilize him in a containment field, Benjamin disappears again despite all of their efforts to save him. Jake begging him not to leave. In the present, Elder Jake tells his guest that losing him again was worse than the first time, knowing that his father is alive but unable to reach him. As his young guest consoles him, Jake shudders and wheezes in pain. She tells him she can come back another time so he can continue his story when he's rested. But Elder Jake looks at her tenderly and tells her that there won't be any other time because he is dying. Act 3 Knowing that his guest is disheartened by this revelation, 
Jake assuages her distress by stating that his dying is simply an inevitability at his age and perhaps even a cry for attention from some of the younger people. He tells her she listens well, which is important for a writer, and she mildly retorts that she's not a writer yet. But she brushes off his interests and persuades him to continue his story. Returning where he left off, Elder Jake recalls that after his father's disappearance from sickbay, Dax and Chief O'Brien continued their investigations, even proposing to recreate the accident on the Defiant, but figured it was impossible without the element of the wormhole inversion, which would not occur for another 50 years. To make matters worse, the Klingon aggression forced the Federation to relinquish control of Deep Space Nine to the Empire, forcing everyone, including Jake, to evacuate the station and also access to the wormhole, the main component he needed to save his father. Standing as if he needed to change perspectives on the evening and moving to a larger and more comfortable chaise lounge, Elder Jake says, I was left with no choice but to get on with my life. I went to Earth, drifted around, and eventually ended up studying writing at the Pennington School. After graduation, I settled here in Louisiana so I could be near my grandfather. His guest told him that the family restaurant Cisco's is still there, as is a copy of his first acceptance letter from his publisher on display. Looking around his home, she deduced that Jake wrote her favorite book, Anselm, in this very house, Jake pointing to the desk behind them. After that moment, Jake tells her that his life went on, and he thought less and less about the past. He fell in love, married, and his home was filled with happiness. A sweet, familiar voice jogs his memory of decades past. Jake is now an adult, married to a lovely Bajoran woman named Karina, and in this memory, he is being visited by Nog, who is now a Starfleet commander. Much to Nog's culinary chagrin, Karina is serving blackened redfish for dinner. Nog points out that there are perfectly good slugs in the bayou, but at least he isn't having Karina chew his food for him. A Ferengi cultural quirk, that Jake has been trying to break Nog from for decades. As Karina fetches some champagne, Jake and Nog sit with each other to catch up on their lives. Jake asks about Nog's trip to the Bajoran sector. Nog tells him that in the spirit of scientific exchange, the Klingons would allow Starfleet to send expeditions through the wormhole. But Nog surmises that the Klingons were only using Starfleet as fodder to test the Dominion's responses to any ships coming through the wormhole. Nog says that the station looks a little run down these days, but Morn is now running the bar, and his father Rom and Uncle Quark finally bought their moon. Well, Quark's moon that Rom keeps from disrepair. But the real reason why Nog is visiting is to toast his best friend's success, as Jake is winner of this year's Betar Prize for his collected stories. In an uncharacteristically, albeit lovely toast, Nog complimented Jake, yet in true Ferengi fashion, lamented the fact that Jake isn't raking in the latinum for his amazing and now award-winning stories. Suddenly, this wonderful memory comes to a crashing end as a fit of wheezing makes Elder Jake drop his teacup, alarming his guest, wondering if she should call for a doctor. Jake insists that he is all right and continues with this same memory. After Nog had left, Jake, once again buried in the feverishness of working on his newest book, he was coaxed away from his work to spend a lovely and passionate evening with his muse, whom he surprised with asking her if she would design the cover of his new book. And before they could continue, 
that same familiar sputtering and flashing blue light filled his parlor, and to Jake's disbelief, he has come face to face with his father once again. Act 4. Sitting his father down on the very same couch where Elder Jake is telling his guest about this very moment, the younger adult Jake Sisko and Karina contact Starfleet and are being told that a science team has been dispatched and are en route. Jake, beside himself with joy and disbelief, introduces his wife of already seven years to his father for the first time, but no grandchildren yet to speak of. She tells Benjamin that they were married at the family restaurant at Jake's grandfather's insistence, along with all of his friends in attendance, Dax, Kira, and O'Brien. Anxious to reach Starfleet again, Benjamin looks at his son and simply wants to make sure they spend what little time they have together without distraction. Karina proudly hands Benjamin copies of Jake's award-winning works, Anselm and his collected stories. But instead of pride, Jake looks at his wife, then his father, and sobs uncontrollably. As Karina gives them time to be alone, Jake, fighting through tears and shame, apologizes to his father for giving up the search, and as Benjamin beams proudly and thankfully for the success and husband that his son has become, Jake appears to be filled with regret and sorrow and confesses a very painful truth, that all of this has been meaningless as long as his father is still lost in time. Benjamin consoles Jake by telling him, of course this all matters. Jake's accomplishments, his career, his happiness, his marriage, and that Benjamin still wants grandchildren, even though he will not always be around. With those last words, he vanishes again, leaving Jake sitting there shattered and in tears. Back in the present, the young woman has no words of comfort or consolation, but Elder Jake insists that she keeps intently listening as he once again mentions that there is little time left. He continues by recounting that with Dax's help, they concluded that the accident on the Defiant created a subspace leak between them, allowing Benjamin to appear wherever Jake was. But fluctuations in the wormhole's unstable subspace field causes Benjamin to appear randomly. However, Dax also surmised that the next time Benjamin appears, Jake would be an old man. All consumed with saving his father, Jake puts aside his career at 37 and returns to school to learn everything about subspace mechanics. But his personal crusade comes at a terrible price, as Jake not only sacrifices his award-winning career, but his marriage as well. With unwavering purpose, Jake presses on and reaches graduate-level expertise in his new field of study. Through years of research and planning, he is able to recreate the original wormhole accident as he is rapidly approaching the 50-year anniversary of the wormhole inversion. Calling in every favor he has, and with Worf's influence with the Klingon High Council, Jake is granted access to the Bajoran system. He assembles his father's original crew, Dax, Bashir, and most importantly, he is able to resurrect the Mothfall Defiant under the command of Captain Nog. With a much aged Bashir and Jadzia Dax manning their science stations, Jake finalizes and assembles his custom-designed subspace flux isolator in engineering. Jake has modified the Defiant's shields to absorb the gravimetric wave which caused the original accident 50 years ago and channeled that energy into the isolator. As the wormhole began fluctuating, Captain Sisko appears once again from his subspace prison. The plan seems to be working 
until Jake and his father are both pulled into subspace, disappearing right in front of Jackson Bashir. In the subspace dimension, Jake sees for the first time the void that his father has been trapped in all this time. He tells his father that it has been 14 years since their last meeting. As Jake continues desperately to contact Dax and Bashir, Benjamin sees that Jake is now older than he is. And once again, Benjamin urges Jake to tell him everything that he has missed while trapped in this subspace fragment. Jake shamefully tells his father that he's put everything aside to prepare for this moment and has lost so much in the process. His wife, his career, and that future filled with grandchildren that Benjamin so desperately wanted. Jake begins to slip out of the subspace fragment, and his father pleads with him to let go and make a better, more meaningful life without him, if not for Jake, then for him. The last words Jake hears before he sees his father for the last time were, Promise me! As Jake materializes back on the Defiant, he is shattered once again, only to be comforted by Dax one last time. Act 5. As dawn breaks, Jake sits in a chair by the window, noticeably breathing with more difficulty, and asks his young guest to go over to his writing desk. Upon it are a stack of papers, a collection of unpublished and new stories, and his way to honor what his father pleaded for him to do, to move on with building a better life. Offering his guest a copy, she quickly responds by asking to keep these original papers because they contain handwritten notes, edits, and all of the changes that Jake had made, a treasure trove which would prove invaluable to her as a future writer. He tells her that these are unpublished works because he hasn't yet finished his current story, and to lighten the mood, quip that if you publish posthumously, editors can't demand any rewrites. Jake wanted to write at least two more, but once again says, there isn't enough time. Jake confesses that after his final and failed attempt to save his father, he was obsessed with what went wrong until he finally discovered the truth about the subspace tether that he shared with him. He describes their connection as if they were joined by an elastic cord. Every so often, the cord would go slack and then become taut, which would slingshot his father further ahead within Jake's timeline over and over again, unless the cord was cut, but not when it was slack, which would untether his father in the subspace void. Only releasing his father from this connection when the bond was at its strongest, when they were together in the same room and in the same timeline, this would return Captain Sisko to the very moment of the accident. Jake's young protege understands exactly what this means. She knows that his father is coming soon so that Jake can cut the cord between them. As Jake ushers her to leave, he gives her a very familiar piece of advice one his father gave him a long time ago, to poke her head up every once in a while, take a look around, and see what's going on. It's life, Melanie. As Jake sits, preparing for his father's return, Melanie clutches his stories closely to her heart, kisses him on the cheek, and thanks him for everything he has given her from this encounter. As she collects her belongings, Jake's looks upon her one last time professing his pleasure in meeting this young lady. Finding himself alone with his thoughts, Jake walks through his study, collecting a manuscript from a bookshelf, and most notably, his father's baseball, of which, when finally seated, he looks at wistfully until he falls asleep. Unbeknownst to Jake, his father had appeared, 
who was simply sitting in front of him with so much love and longing in his eyes. Benjamin tells Jake that he is so proud that he's returned to writing. With labored and painful breathing, Jake asks his father to look at the inscription on the manuscript. It is a dedication that simply reads, To my father, who is coming home. Benjamin is at a loss understanding what this means. Jake tells him that he was the reason his father was being dragged through time all along. And now Jake finally reveals to Benjamin that it is time to finally cut him loose from their connection. Still not understanding Jake's cryptic confession, Jake looks intently at the table next to them and his father picks up the very same hypospray Jake used on himself only hours ago. Finally understanding what Jake has set in motion, Benjamin cannot believe what his son has done to himself in order to return him to the moment before the accident that changed their lives over 50 years ago. Heartbroken and remorseful, Benjamin tells Jake that he didn't have to do this, but Jake, with calm in his voice and clarity through his tearful eyes, tells his father he had to, for him, and for the 18-year-old boy who needs his father. As Jake slips away for the final time, Benjamin holds his aged son one last time, and just as suddenly, Benjamin is back on the defiant. Realizing what is about to happen, he launches himself at his young son and knocks them both clear of the energy surge that the elder Jake Sisko warned his father about only minutes ago. Startled and puzzled, Jake asked his father how he knew to dodge the wave. He told him that this time, we were just lucky. Jake looks at his father and asks him if he is all right. With the truth behind his eyes, and with knowing that the son he is clutching tightly to him right now would have a chance at finding happiness and a full life, Benjamin tearfully utters, I am now. The end. Oh, man. See, in Mission Log tradition, whoever reads the recap, um, then whoever follows the recap says something funny to sort of, you know, take the, uh, <laughs> sort of take the tension out of what, uh, what just happened when it's a really heavy episode. And, and I feel really wrong doing that right now. Um, and I also feel wrong doing that because a lot of work went into that. And this is one of those episodes where even though you and I have talked about how do we shorten, how do we boil it down? How do we get mm -hmm. to the meat of it? I know that a, this episode means a lot to you and B, there is just so much to get across because you have multiple uh, time frames happening. You have a lot of character moments that are acted. Therefore, when you're doing something that is audio only like this, you have to describe what's going on in the scene. Mm -hmm. You have to describe what's going on in the acting. So that was a lot of work. And, and thank you. And I appreciate being able to sort of relive the episode again through that. Now, that said, it's time for me to take the tension out of the room. <laughs> So, Norman, really, you opened with the worst line in the history of literature. It was, it a, was dark a dark and stormy, and stormy night. night. <laughs> <laughs> it literally was, though, in the episode. This is, not an, this is not an episode where you do a lot of jokes in the recap. There aren't, you know, ELO references mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, BJ and the Bear or whatever, you know, terrible TV show you want to drop in the notes. Not a, but you opened it with that. <laughs> but, I mean, this entire episode kind of does hearken to a stitch in time 
It, it does. So now, funny enough, I, I looked up. I couldn't remember where that originated. I only knew that line from uh, the the Bulwer Lighten Fiction Contest, where every year they give an award to sort of uh, purple prose. You know, mm. the the worst bit of writing of the year, and and people just have a lot of fun with it. So if you go look up what people have been creating to fit that, it is a lot of fun. But that phrase, it was a dark and stormy night. First reference to that, eighteen oh nine by Washington Irving in his A History of New York. So if you want to go back and uh, pick up an early 19th century book and relive the dark and stormy night uh, at one time in New York, then, then there you go. That's what you want to look for. You know, before the uh, before the listeners send me all the, the email, I'm going to correct myself. It was a wrinkle in time, not a stitch oh, in yeah. time. There yeah. you go. A wrinkle in go. time. Good call. So you can delete all those emails right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hear them deleting it yes. right now. Yeah. I hope so. One of the things that we cannot gloss over lightly when reviewing this episode is just the tremendous performance that we were privileged to watch by Tony Todd, an acting masterclass. It, it's Look, Star Trek from the beginning and, and, and TV from a certain point on has been based on uh, the strong guest star, and people look forward to the strong guest star. But it, it's very rare that a guest star actually has the starring role of the episode. And, and usually there's something written into a show Bible about how, yeah, we want guest stars here and here, but they can't actually outshine the main cast, you know? So every now and then you, you get somebody in a show uh, you get somebody in an episode who's just so, so powerful and the script is really geared toward them. And I, I think about, uh, you know, certainly a guy like uh, James Sloyan stands out in his uh, couple of Star Trek appearances. Uh, Harris Eulen mm-hmm. as uh, Maritza in Duet, uh, which mm-hmm. was toward the end of season one of Deep Space Nine, uh, where he plays somebody who is posing as the butcher of Galatep and is in this very intimate uh, uh, jail room scene for most of the episode with Kira. Um, Episodes like that, performances like that, that just jump out at you and you go, oh, wow, I don't remember that episode because of the main cast. I remember that episode because it was all about a performance by a particular actor and yeah, uh, Tony Todd is just tremendous in this, which interesting because I think Tony Todd is known for playing these very imposing parts. Mm-hmm. And here he has to bring such depth and such emotion to what's going on. So, yeah, there's not much more to say other than that he's he's incredible. You you called it masterclass. And he did it in a variety of different levels. I mean, he did it as young adult Jake, not so young adult Jake, elderly Jake behind all of that makeup and the, the prosthetics. Unfortunately, that they lost to lizard babies, but I didn't mm-hmm. vote for that. <laughs> but you're right. You know, uh, Tony yeah, Todd, that, we, we know yeah. him for a variety of, of different roles, um, you know, one of which is, is known to many people in fandom, especially in horror fandom, as Candyman. Yep. Seeing him turn, this in, turn in this performance and, and seeing just the, the depth of his craft was such a privilege to watch, but not, not just Tony himself, because there were two Jakes, <laughs> the two Jakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can make a joke Jakes. about that, but I, yeah. but I won't, um, <laughs> <laughs> but there were two Jakes involved in here. I mean, yes, Tony Todd was magnificent, but Sirach Lofton showed me 
a level, a different gear change in his craft, in his talent that I have not yet seen. And there is one particular scene where, where Benjamin Sisko is in sick bay and he goes from kind of aloof to wounded to shattered to shameful all in the span of seconds because not only is Sirach, you know, informed with the script, but he, he pulls an emotion that is so unbelievably connective to people that feel this way, that feel that they haven't done enough. They haven't fought hard enough. They haven't tried with every fiber in their being to do what they felt they had to get done. Mm-hmm. And it faced with what he was facing How do you reconcile that with yourself? And I thought that that moment was heartbreaking. It's one of the most powerful moments I've ever watched in TV. How did you feel about that, John? Yeah, and actually I have that in my closing notes too. I'm going to come back to it because it it is a moment where everything is firing correctly. The, The direction, the writing, and the acting, they don't overdo it. And everything that you just described is inferred by the performance, not by stating what's going on. So they they simply allowed the moment to happen, which I love to see, particularly in Star Trek, because we do get bogged down a lot in technical explanations and uh, uh, sort of deus ex machina. That was a scene that was just very pure and very heartfelt. So uh, 100%. Um, hey, I, I also want to give a, a kudos here to the production designers uh, for the Jake Sisko home. So much detail. Um, I love this blend of New Orleans, 19th and 20th century plus 24th century technology. Um, There are some strong representations of that where you have like the the backlit panels that are some type of technology or maybe just a piece of art combined with technology. But even the walls, even some of the flat walls have like a, a 3D effect on them that just make it a little more futuristic, but it also belongs in this presumably Victorian home. Um, And and I love, there's a little tidbit of trivia about it, that uh, the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland was part of the design inspiration for this home. Sometimes we spend a lot of time in Star Trek in very austere or very manufactured environments, and this didn't feel that way at all. and it's a testament to the times that Trek does a good job of returning us to Earth when we need to and uh, kind of grounding us and giving us a lot of personality through, again, simple things like the design, the details, the props, and the way that, uh, that the actors get to interact with those. You know, one of the things that I thought was interesting, not until the very end was the young woman, the guest, the writer-to-be, introduced as Melanie. It was only at the very end. And there wasn't a scene where, where she either introduced herself or Jake asked, you know, what's your name, young lady. So I found that interesting, a little strange. And I was just wondering if there was a cut scene that, uh, you know, that informed us of that. Did you find that strange? That is a good point. And I actually haven't seen an earlier draft of that script. You would think that that's sort of an obvious scene that would be in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe maybe somebody's got that. I'd be very curious to see. But, you know, again, since we're calling our performances, Rachel Robinson, she is so sweet and genuine uh, in, in what she does throughout this that um, I, I think I didn't even notice that she didn't have a name 
until I went back through and did my first round of notes. <laughs> you know, one of the things that uh, a lot of the fans want uh, from Deep Space Nine is that they want to see it remastered in high definition. Mm. But as things go along and with the clarity of of 4K and the resolution that you can bring to a lot of these remastered works, one of the things I was actually worried about was basically the appliances, the makeup appliances, and would they hold up? Yeah, that was a tough one. I, I thought the makeup was a little dodgy in places. Like even on Tony Todd as the slightly older Jake, um, they, they do the hair, they have stuff on the face, but then his forehead kind of looks like, oh, well, that's the bald wig that they did a wig on top of. Um, but you learn to sort of accept it with mm -hmm. him because I, I think at a certain point you're just so mesmerized by a performance. Then you go to Future Defiant, and I felt like, especially with Dax and Bashir, ooh, I I wasn't buying a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, even in, even in like 480 and the translation from VHS to upscaled 720, it, it just, yeah. you know, it was, it was, a, it was a big ask. And yeah, yeah, you can get past it because you're really there for the narrative and not necessarily for trying to pick apart, you know, the, the quality of the, of the makeup at that time. Yeah. Um, pretty much why the lizard babies like won that award. Right. And, of, and look, you know, and here's the thing. We, we call something like that out because we both noticed that that is no slight on uh, Michael Westmore's talent, who obviously oh, no, is a no, genius. No, no, no. Um, no. But it, it's just, it, it's a thing. And sometimes things don't age as well. And as you point out, the technology is not always your friend. You know, what's really cool though, is that because we saw that, that future timeline, we got to see a return to, something that really, really struck the fans uh, in, a, in a very profound way, especially when it comes to what happens in the future of the next generation. And you actually got to see the, the future uniforms and the future com badge that we're now seeing in Picard, or yes. at least the same design thread. So I thought that was really nice. I'm sorry, what is this Picard you speak of? I heard he makes really, really good wine that, <laughs> that, that extends your lifespan. Norman, jump the timeline. Uh, no, it, I, absolutely. Yeah, they they uh, started using those insignia and and the uniforms that you know from uh, uh, all good it things, right? Yeah, it was all good things. Yeah, all good things. Okay, right, let me yeah. try not, that. Again. Yeah, not future imperfect. It was all good. <laughs> not, things. not future imperfect. Yeah, yeah. It is very cool to see. Uh, and I will just rewind the timeline a little bit. Uh, all that stuff from uh, all good things, where that design of oh, what would a future Starfleet uniform look like that kind of sleek. Uh, it was very cool looking. Glad to see that internal consistency. And by the way, speaking about uh, things that are internally consistent and with DS9 building its own future a little bit, so nice to see Captain Nog in this mm -hmm. future timeline. Um, we miss Aaron. And uh, as we record this episode, it's still relatively recent that we lost him. So it's so nice to see an episode that projects this future with him in the captain's chair, because we've only on DS9 just now gotten to the point where he's accepted into Starfleet and this will be his future. So it's nice to see them pick up that thread and run with it in the show. You know, one of the last things I wanted to mention, John, in our observations, it was the dichotomy between younger Jake using a pad and a stylus to write his stories, but then elder Jake and elder elder Jake really kind of like feverishly writing on paper. And then finally, when elder Jake gives his final script, his final works to his father, it was a bound manuscript of paper. So yes. what do you think was going on there? Why do you think that that choice was made? 
I, I wonder if he's sort of like Kirk and he just has a fondness for antiques. But I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this because I took a similar note uh, early in Act 1 when we see him using the pad. Um, and he's got the stylus. He seems to be using it for a few different purposes. Like at one point, it's just sort of a pointer. This mm-hmm. is sort of going along with the text, or maybe it was a highlighter. And then it seemed like there was a small area of a screen that he was handwriting. Uh, so it was cool to see multi-functions on that pad. But yeah, then we got to his home, and it just seemed like I, I wonder if it was almost a character choice, like he's reverting, he's going deeper into his family's past. He's in New Orleans, where his grandfather was, where the family restaurant was. And what do you do? You just sort of absorb this historic and older culture and maybe absorb some of the historic and older techniques for doing things. You know, I, I, I'm never the person who said, oh, vinyl sounds better than a CD. But I kind of understand it uh, when some people say, like, yeah, I, I take my notes in a notebook, not on my phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's it's kind of cool. And then at the end of the day, yeah, I might accidentally uh, delete my notes out of my phone, but you still have this physical thing that you can point to and pull off a shelf in 30 years. So uh, maybe, maybe he is the smarter of us. I think that he wanted to maybe just return to some type of authenticity, the way that the writers that he was inspired by did their craft. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, by the way, speaking of uh, the writers that he was inspired by, uh, I I kept wondering the the title Anselm that uh, was the title of his book, if that meant something. And and other than just being a name, um, in my head – I wondered if it was almost this uh, the, the similar sounding reference to Absalom, 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 which was by William Faulkner, one of the great Southern novels of all time. Um, so that that sort of stuck in my head. Um, but really, there there isn't any other true reference to that. There's Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury, uh, Saint. Anselm, who came up with the ontological argument. He lived in the 11th century. Go have fun with that. Um, <laughs> but but that was really the, the only other connection that I could make to something there. Uh, but, but to me, it just sort of brought back this idea of the great Southern writer writing about uh, characters that he knew. And the one last observation I wanted to make, John, and to lighten up a little bit of kind of like this heavy tone that we have in this episode— the one thing that I was really impressed with, especially with the costumers and, and people that outfitted the Elder Jake, I love the fact that his his taste in his sweater game improved over time. Yes. Jake <laughs> with better sweaters. That is what we get out of this episode. I think I am going to sit this one out. Even though I can process a billion bytes per second, I just need an extra moment to reflect. We'll get to know the visitor more in a moment, but first a word from ExpressVPN, giving you back your internet privacy. You know, it's interesting. I use a laptop most of the time uh, when I'm doing the, the heavy editing, the he- like audio editing, video editing. Uh, but I find that more often than, than ever, I'm mobile and I'm taking my phone or a tablet with me, maybe stopping at a restaurant or a coffee shop and doing work there. And I love that. And a lot of my work is either answering email or watching something and taking notes. 
And ExpressVPN has been a huge part of that for me now because I go everywhere with my devices and I like to feel safe when I use them. So I'm a big fan of ExpressVPN for that reason, primarily the privacy and security, but also speed. As soon as I installed ExpressVPN, which is very simple, I simply signed up for the service, installed the app, and it's a big button that shows me if it's connected or disconnected. That's my control over it. Um, I feel safe using it anywhere, and I know that my speed has not been compromised either. And I definitely wanted to try that out for myself. I had it off, did a speed test, turned the service on, did another speed test, and wasn't hit one bit. So the other thing that I love about ExpressVPN is the cost. Well, it's less than 7 bucks a month, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So wherever it is that I go, a, a coffee shop, a restaurant, a hotel, if I'm out of town, ExpressVPN protects my connections and it's speeds that impress me every time. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. So, John, would you consider this an alternate timeline episode? I mean, considering that we're seeing Jake in this particular reality and then this accident creates this anomaly by the wormhole subspace field and then Benjamin isn't – he isn't living the timeline that he's supposed to live in and that we never really saw the life of Benjamin Sisko and we saw this alternate life of Jake – what do you think that does to the timeline? Where are we when, if we consider that the accident happened in the prime timeline? Right. That is a great question. Um, I, I love thinking about that because, I, again, Star Trek has sort of done this in the past where you create the conceit of the alternate timeline or the parallel universe, and then suddenly everything becomes about that, and the changes there are really extreme. When we think of parallel universe, alternate timeline, we, talk, we think about the, the mirror universe or the Kelvin timeline. And then this is just one thing that changes the emotional life of one person. Not to say it doesn't affect other people, but, but the, this is the story that we're following here. And Earth has not gone to ruin. There's not you know other uh, uh, bigger picture things that we're worried about here. But yeah, we are in this alternate timeline where we get to explore what happens when Cisco is gone. I won't say dead here because we, we know from that timeline that he is alive in some sense in this other place, this, this subspace field. Um, but yeah, we're, we're living out another timeline that presumably then gets quote unquote corrected when Jake is able to solve this at the end. Like so, then the question becomes, did that timeline, does it continue or does it cease to exist? And that's the real big question because obviously we, we have an emotional connection with now Melanie, who's this young writer. You know, she has learned all of this, this, this craft, this writing craft, and he, she's, she's, the, she's the sole inheritor of Jake's final story. And once the timeline is reset, what happens to her? Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
We, I, we, we simply have no way of knowing. Now, maybe, just maybe, she exists because whatever happened prior to the accident, her parents who met had her, whatever, you know. So that is an entity that exists. It is a be- Melanie is a being that exists. But if everything else in that timeline is different and she never wanted to become a writer or she wanted to become a writer but didn't get inspired – by Anslem getting published, I, who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows? She she could be working at the Cetacean Institute by now. <laughs> she could be doing anything else. Yeah, it kind of <laughs> reminds me of that scene at the end of A Mirror Mirror when Marlena Moreau, not the captain's girl, but you know the uh, the ensign mm-hmm. who comes in and asks, you know, Kirk, you know, she she asks him for the captain's log, but that's a completely different person. It's a completely different timeline, but it's the same yeah. physical person. So somewhere along the right. line. There is a Melanie out there who may or may not have been affected by the writer Jake Sisko because Jake Sisko has actually gone on and continued his writing past the Pennington Academy. He's created Anselm in his collected works and then more so, which means that she wouldn't have to seek him out, which means that she never would have had that encounter with him. Yeah. This is wild. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. So it, it is a very cool, interesting sort of like butterfly effect thing to consider. I mean, and again, Star Trek plays fast and loose with the idea of creating timelines or parallels or, or whatever. And and shout out to the episode Parallels, uh, in which Worf gets trapped bouncing back and forth to all these different enterprises. Star Trek will pay, play fast and loose with that. But then you just sort of hope that you're not too worried about what happens to that one person who actually does get affected by it. It's very wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey to coin a phrase. Exactly, as someone once said. <laughs> you know, John, though, uh, the, the hardest thing for me when I was doing my notes for this show and and something that it was very difficult for me to come to grips to was trying to find the real heart of this show. And the real heart of the show is probably one of the mm-hmm. most difficult topics, one, to address, and two, to try and and put a label on. I want to say this in the very most respectful way when I talk about this topic, because it's not, it's something that I'm not an expert in, but it's something that I did look up and I feel that I am attaching the right affectation and label to it the right way. And it is altruistic suicide versus benevolent suicide. The word suicide itself, removing the emotional content from that is the killing of oneself. Now, taking a look at what Elder Jake did at the very beginning of the episode and understanding the episode, we know that he injected himself with something that would eventually end his life so that he would be able to cut the cord and return his father to the life that his father deserved and everyone else needed for the stability of the station, the wormhole, the war. They needed Benjamin Sisko back and especially that 18-year-old Jake. So... I just wanted to read for clarification the Merriam-Webster online 1A definition of suicide, which states the act or instance of taking one's own life voluntarily and intentionally. Hmm. I also followed that up with two variations of what we are trying trying to establish here, altruistic and benevolent suicide. So altruistic suicide is the sacrifice of one's life to save or benefit others for the good of the group or to preserve the traditions in honor of a society. It is always intentional. 
coupled with benevolent suicide, refers to the self-sacrifice of one's own life for the sake of the greater good. Such sacrifice may be for the sake of executing a particular action or for the sake of keeping a natural balance in the society. I feel that in this instance, especially when Elder Jake at the very end tells his father that he has to cut the cord in order for him to return things to the way they needed to be, mm-hmm. was in some way partially both altruistic and benevolent. That's the way that I saw it. I don't know how the other listeners saw it, and I'd be happy to engage in those conversations. Yeah. But how did you see it? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly we're not going to solve that here. So it would be interesting to hear how, uh, how our listeners feel about it. I, I, this is an interesting path to follow because in Elder Jake's mind, he is saving his father, his father who's been stuck in this place where, where presumably there is a way to get him out. We don't know what would have happened if, if Jake had simply lived out his life and died naturally when, when, whenever that time came, would Benjamin Sisko have been released from that, uh, that subspace prison, for lack of a better word? Anyway, there are a lot of unknowns here. So in his mind, he is doing that to save his father. Is it, maybe selfish is not the right word here, but it, there is a self-serving element to it that he is so destroyed from the age of 18 that his one and only immediate family member, his father, has taken from him, that his life from that point on becomes an obsession to get that back. So Elder Jake that we know does not benefit from that. Elder Jake that we meet in this episode doesn't benefit from changing the timeline again, but this other Jake somewhere else does by getting his father back. If everything works, if everything goes to plan. Mm-hmm. It's a very sort of mind-bending science fiction way of exploring this idea to say, is it uh, uh, benevolent, say, to give this gift to this other person that is you, but you haven't actually met? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know, and you're not going to meet that person. You're not going to meet that Jake who goes from that point forward in his life. But you're making a sacrifice so that his life is better, presumably than that, that the, the Benjamin that he knew up until that point also has a better life, quote unquote, better. At least they, they get him back into the, the time that he belongs. It's a really complicated, complex question here that I, I, I think actually leads me to another thought that I had on this show. And, and believe me, I, I say this carefully because I don't want to take away from the, the value, the quality, the drama of this show. There's a little bit of a problem with it, though. And, and that problem is that this story that we're exploring, it's Star Trek and it's not real life. Even though the the emotions are real, the the process is, is real, but because this is Star Trek, there is a scientific resolution that gives this story a happy ending. Happy in the respect that the Jake that we know, the Benjamin that we know, will be reunited, and the timeline will write itself, and that's the story that we continue to follow. Right. Mm-hmm. So they get to ruminate on loss. When I say they, I mean the, the, the story, the writers, the, the, the characters in this play. But in the end, the loss 
is somebody that we're not dealing with anymore. So there's a second chance here, Mm -hmm. which is very fulfilling, you know, that we get to see, we get to go, oh, wait, they actually get the second chance they wanted that they should have had anyway. This was just an accident. Something went wrong, but we get to right the wrong and undo the accident. Now, that's not a bad thing necessarily. So, so we as the audience, we still get to sit in the emotion of this episode and, and we get to enjoy the sort of mind-bending exercise of it, which I think you just brought up in a very interesting way, uh, asking if this is an altruistic or, or benevolent suicide. We're left with this story about sacrifice and, and a story about maturity and where the child becomes the parent. So there's all this lovely stuff going on. There's all this deep, heavy, mesmerizing emotion happening. And at the same time, because you brought this up, Norman, (laughs) uh, because you brought up, you know, what what are we getting here out of the suicide? It, It really stumps me because I think to myself, well, again, if these are characters who don't know each other, who, who we, we aren't going to know who benefits and how. We're just sort of taking a guess uh, out of this obsessive, lifelong attempt here. Who really benefits from that? Well, it, it's almost Elder Jake absolving himself of this guilt mm-hmm. after 50-plus years. It, it's a really challenging thing. And looking at it from that perspective, one of the things that for anyone who has experienced this kind of loss and has has held on to this type of pain and guilt. Mm -hmm. What I think that may be a counterpoint to what you're saying is that what at play is here is the, the element of hope. What does hope do to people who have gone through this type of loss? Because at one point in time before Jake physically holds his father's hand at his second appearance, the first appearance being at his bed, he didn't know that his father was still alive which means that there was a point in time where he could move on with his life. But once he realized that his father was trapped in this subspace anomaly, that means that his father had the opportunity to come back. The hope that Jake had or lost because he thought, he thought his father was gone has been rekindled to the point where it influenced his decisions later on in life. Some people yeah. cannot move past the fact that a loved one is gone, but they know that that loved one is gone because that loved one is buried and put into a place of rest mm-hmm. and honor. Yeah. But Benjamin isn't there. That's the right. whole driving issue with Jake's obsession with trying to save his father, which curtails his ability to live. Well, you just put your finger right on what to me is the central tragedy of the story. At a certain point, the tragedy of the loss of Benjamin or the tragedy of the death of Elder Jake isn't the tragedy of the story. The the tragedy is Jake's inability to move on. And and look, I, I, I don't say that lightly because we don't just get over loss. They, they deal with that a little bit in the episode. You don't just get over it. It's something where pain dissipates over time, but it, the, it's still with you. You, you. It is still 
you incorporate it into your life uh, rather than letting it completely uh, uh, derail your life. Uh, but this version of Jake that we get, there's an obsession, which, you know, unfortunately is very easy to understand and easy to relate to uh, because there's not a person on earth who hasn't been through loss or who won't go through loss and have to deal with these incredibly complex emotions. You, you brought up uh, survivor's guilt, which uh, clearly is playing into this as well. He says, Elder Jake says to Ben, none of it matters. And, and, and fortunately, Ben tells him, no, it all matters. E everything, the, the, the marriage, uh, not having kids, not writing, you know, not, not living this life that he had the opportunity to live, all of it matters. Even if we take the element just for a moment here, because Star Trek is is fiction, it's story, it's metaphor. If you take the element of death out of it, the idea that somebody would live their life for somebody else uh, to the detriment of their own life, where in this case, a parent is saying, no, 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 you, you have to go live your life. Like if I'm doing my job as a parent, and I say this to somebody who doesn't have kids, mm -hmm. but I have parents – you know, part of the job of the parent is to say, here, here are the tools for you to go live your own life outside of the context of just being the child in this family. There is so much of a complex psychology on display here <laughs> that is absolutely heartbreaking. And I, I, I wish that there are a way, maybe in a, another alternate parallel, parallel timeline for this Jake to say, I may not have been able to save my father, but I am going to live with that and I am going to still pursue the things that I need to pursue. Because mm -hmm. the Jake that we see here is is broken in so many ways. It's it's um, I would say that it's hard to watch, but it, it, it's not hard to watch in the respect that we get to see the the truth and honesty of that. I think that uh, one of the last things I wanted to point out was Jake's inability to find closure because when you lose a loved one, there is closure, at least for, for our mortal understanding. Not talking about science fiction, not talking about fantasy. I'm talking about our human mortal understanding of, of death and loss and closure. But he wasn't afforded that. He wasn't afforded the fact that this is my father even though that his body was not being able to put to rest, you know, we were able to put his memory to rest. We were able to put his, you know, his, his essence in a place of honor and then move on. But I think the one thing that Jake never had a chance to do was to say, okay, my father wants me to be happy. He wants me to move on with my life. He wants me to move on with my career. I want to dedicate my life to my happiness. And in a sense, bring happiness to the memory of my father for what he wanted for me. He wanted for me to have children. He wanted for me to be married. He wanted for me to have a career. He wanted for me to live a life that he didn't get a chance to and bring happiness to the lineage that's going to continue past even me. This is what yeah. parents want for their children. They don't want their children to stop living their lives because they can't move on past the guilt and the grief of what happened. 
And I think that the study of Jake not being able to do that was probably the most profound thing that I've ever seen in Star Trek because, and I'll mention this a little bit later, I lost my father to leukemia in in 2010. It was a two-year fight. And the one thing that my dad said to me before he left, before I last, I saw him for the last time, and he says, I want you to be happy. You know, I, I want yeah. you to live your life. I want you to to do the things that you've always wanted to do. And, and <laughs> the funny thing enough is it brings it all the way back to when you first offered me a mission log. Because hmm. the one thing that I said to myself the first time when you offered me a chance at auditioning, I'm like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> it seems like so much to do. It seems, but and then all yeah. of a sudden, I had almost kind of like that revelation that Jake had with, with Benjamin. He would be like, why wouldn't you? This is what you want. You love Star Trek. You love talking about Star Trek. You love talking about it and, and enjoying it and meeting, meeting people who love that and connect with you. Why wouldn't you do that? And that is the reason why I texted you back and said I wouldn't mind auditioning. It's because <laughs> of what I think my dad would want from me. He wouldn't want me to say, no, don't try that. He would want me to say, I want to try everything. I want to try everything because he wanted me to be happy. And that's how you move on from an experience like this is to embrace the happiness that your parent wanted for you. And Jake didn't get that. While John and Norman wrap things up, I will be over here looking for a Kleenex. So arriving as we do at the end of the show where we get to wrap it up and talk about whether or not the episode holds up and what we learned and what are the morals, meanings, messages. I, I, I kind of want to stop that for a second and just say thank you because uh, you shared something uh, personal with me and with our audience and – you know, that's what we always hope for a podcast like this is that uh, we get to be personal and honest. And certainly when we're presented with a story, uh, with, with a piece of art like this that touches those emotions, uh, we, we don't want to shy away from it. And um, I, again, all, all I can say is that I'm honored that, uh, that you would share this uh, in such a personal way. So it, it almost feels like... Um, Oh, I don't know, maybe anticlimactic to ask you if this holds up, <laughs> but I'll let you go first. Well, I think it absolutely holds up. I mean, this isn't just an episode of Star Trek. It's just not an episode of science fiction or fantasy. When you really look at the bare bones of this episode, this is a love story between a father and son, between a parent and child, an unbreakable bond between something that transcends just being an episode, just being written on a page or <laughs> written out on a pad <laughs> or maybe paper, <laughs> right? There's, there's a level of emotional connectivity for those of us who has lost um, or have lost a parent, a loved one, someone that's so meaningful to us that we felt moving on with our lives or still feel moving on with our lives would be some type of dishonor to their memory. But that's not what they want for us. That's, that's not what they've ever wanted for us. They've always wanted for us and they actually dedicated their lives for us to be happy, for us to move on, to, 
to make our lives better, better than their lives were or what they could expect for us yeah. ever. And that is finding our path, our finding, our finding our way in life, finding a chance for happiness. That's a very, very real emotion, very realistic and very connective to people that have lost somebody significant. So, but also there, there is something that was very much at play here in this episode and that's survivor's guilt. You know, the guilt of being able to move on with our lives past somebody who meant so much to us and who we believe would have meant more to the world if they were able to, to continue to live on their lives. But that's sometimes that's not the reality. So that's why when I watch this episode to this day, and even reviewing this episode for this podcast, it was one of the most difficult things that I've ever had to do in my entire life in subsequent viewings because even though that my father has been gone for 10 years, it's still the freshest, most painful loss that I've ever endured or suffered. It's hard for me to get past it every single time. Like, for instance, John, if... And when you offered me this job and I said, yes, the first thing that I wanted to do is I wanted to call my dad yeah. yeah, and I, and I couldn't, you know, it's like, dad, I'm talking about Star Trek on the podcast, on the internet. Yeah. But like Jake, there was no way to connect that to the person I wanted to connect it yeah. to most. And to this day, it still weighs on me more than I can yeah. bear at times. I, look, I, the only thing that I can follow up with that is uh, just a, a, as far as the production goes, um, yeah, it, it, this is a stunning piece of work. The, it, it works both as a heady, high-concept piece of science fiction, but most importantly, uh, I love a show that is emotionally intimate, stylistically intimate as this is. You know, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier where I love it when it just feels like you're almost watching a play, just two actors in a room talking to each other and getting to the emotional heart of a scene. And there's a lot of that in this episode. There's a lot of show, don't tell. Um, and they, they do. They show beautifully throughout this. The acting is tremendous on everybody's part. They just allow those actors to be in the moment. Uh, and it, it, it succeeds on so many levels. You know, like you, I think about that shot of Jake and Ben in the infirmary where you don't need to hit the audience over the head with what's going on. You just feel what's going on. And again, Tony Todd just delivers in so many ways in this episode. I'm going to go ahead and just talk about some messages in this that I got and then uh, kick it over to you. Uh, I, I think one of the loveliest mm. things said in this episode is the quote that you brought up in the recap, which is poke your head up once in a while to see what's going on. It's life. You can miss it if you don't open your eyes. There is something very positive about that that says, hey, look, you. Uh, no matter how you want to slice this, you can't live your life just for somebody else or you can't bury yourself in this one thing or in future Jake's case, the tragedy. You can't just bury yourself in this tragedy. You have to actually embrace and accept life that is still happening around you, even in the face of loss or the face of distraction or, or whatever else is happening around. Um, it, it's a simple, 
obvious but important sentiment to share. You hit on this in in a few ways. Uh, People have to live their own lives. It's part of growing up. And at the same time, you can't simply wave your hands and get over the loss of someone or something important in your life. Um, you, You do heal more over time, pain lessens over time, but it doesn't mean that that just goes away. The downside of this episode is seeing it turn into obsession. There's not a a healthy, productive way for Jake to deal with what's going on. But again, at the same time in this episode, as I mentioned before, it's Star Trek, it's science. There is a way, there's a method uh, to sort of help, quote unquote, what's going on here. There's something nice about Ben here trying to get Jake to set himself free. So, so Jake can live his life. And again, the, the, that's the message that we talked about in the last segment. It was nice to see, even, even if that's not where the episode is necessarily leading, you know? And I think there's another important thing here that just because things or, or more importantly, people are temporary doesn't mean that they aren't worthwhile, that those moments aren't important. Um, and there's something, again, tragic about this version of Jake who thinks that the value of his father is only in his father being there with him. And and yeah, look, I know that that means something different to an 18-year-old Jake than it would a 68-year-old Jake. But those many times that Cisco has said, live your life, do this, be, be this man mm-hmm. that, that you have every opportunity to grow up to be. But for whatever reason to Jake, that is without value unless Ben is physically there. I, I, I get, I, again, I don't want to denigrate that importance to the 18-year-old version of him. What we see here is this, this just profound sadness of an elderly Jake also living that. Mm-hmm. Tough to see, but I think that, as I pointed out, I think there are valuable lessons there. What else? I really feel like this is your episode, Norman. What else am I am I missing or, or uh, losing out on here? Well, one of the things that I wanted to pick up on what, that what you said, uh, and just to bring a little bit of levity into the situation, when you said wave, I was thinking of Star Trek V. I think maybe you were channeling a little bit of Kirk. It's like, you can't just make my pain disappear with a I wave of pain. a magic wand. <laughs> uh, I want my pain. I need my pain, you know. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to leave the listeners with and, and something that they could probably write in on or, or discuss or debate, you know, on uh, all forms of our social media. Do you believe, do you believe, do you believe the listeners? Does time heal all wounds? That, that famous saying, you know, in time, does that make the hurt lessen? I'm not sure if it does. Because, like I said, there are times like Jake suffered when his father reappeared that only reinforced the fact of how painful the loss really is. Now, that will manifest itself in a variety of different ways. In somebody laughing that sounds like your father. A piece of music that your father loved. Or your mother. Or your friend. Or a loved one. Or a lover. There are touchstones in life that will reignite that loss and that grief. But at the same time, you take that and say, you know what? They would have also been happy 
hearing about my successes, hearing about the milestones that I've made in my life, hearing about that whatever they gave me gave me the opportunity for these special moments. And you reconcile those moments and say, you know what? This is all part of the overall equation of living a good life. Is a life lived for the wrong reasons? No life at all? Perhaps. But you have to make sure that when you are living your life, you live it honestly. You live it with integrity. You don't live it for somebody else's desires. But you build upon those gifts and the advice of the people that have left and make your pathway the best possible life that you can live, not just for them, but for you most importantly. And in saying that, I would like to take this opportunity to dedicate this episode, The Visitor, and this podcast to my father. I lost my father in 2010 after a two-year fight with leukemia. It literally was the most devastating event of my entire life. And in watching this episode, it helped me reconcile certain things about I have to live my life for the happiness that my father would want me to have, for what Benjamin would want Jake to have, for the grandchildren that he wanted, for the marriage that he wanted Jake to have, for the happiness that he wanted his career. And I urge anyone listening to this episode that is in the same situation to really take a look at every single time that you wake up in the morning, are you making those choices for living your best life? Because it is the single greatest gift that you can give to yourself and that you can give to the people that have left living a great life. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at the Roddenberry Podcast Network at podcast.roddenberry.com. You'll find Mission Log, Women at War, Priority One, The Trek Files, Daily Star Trek News, and Shabam. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Hippocratic Oath. Roddenberry.com, the Roddenberry Podcast Network.